pleasure to welcome you to the Williamsburg Unitarian Universalist online worship service today. Our greeter today is Les Solomon. Our other worship leaders today are Nikki Pete, WUU member, and, and our guest speaker today. Our director of religious education, Austin Peterson is here, and our pianist, Dave Robbins. If you're on Zoom, at this time you might wanna to change to speaker view so that you'll have a better view of whoever is speaking. Our AV technicians will be muting and unmuting you as needed. If you'd like to follow along with the order of service, I invite you to visit wuu.org to download a copy. You'll find the link right next to the Zoom and YouTube links. If you're visiting today, we invite you to share your name in the chat if you'd like and anything you'd like us to know. We also invite you to fill out our online visitor form at wuu.org so we can connect with you later. At the end of the service, you're welcome to join in a small group conversation, especially for newer folks. We're glad you're here. We're also going to have other breakout groups right after the service for anyone who wants to talk about the sermon. They will be facilitated and all are welcome. I have two announcements. One is our membership book will be open for signing virtually today following the service. If you have completed starting point or pathways to membership, one, sessions one and two, or transferring from another congregation, or completed coming of age, we welcome you to announce your interest in signing when prompted towards the end of the service, and you will be added to a special breakout group and to sign and signify your commitment to WUU. And also, we have the Animal Blessing Service coming up in August. We would love to include a photo of, of your animals, all these animals we've been glimpsing in the back of your Zoom screens. <laughs> so this is their moment. Um, please send photos to John Trindle, johntrindle at gmail.com, just going in the chat, I think, um, with Animal Blessing Service in the subject line by August 9th to be included in the video. Thank you.
Welcome. We are happy you have joined us via live stream, audio, or video, or Zoom. Whether you have come seeking comfort, encouragement, inspiration, you belong here. You are seen here. Even in spirit, even if we're not seeing you physically. If you are a visitor, we offer you a special welcome and a warm thank you for joining us online today. Now I invite you to join in saying our welcoming words. 
please, as you say these words, speak them to each other and know that we are connected across the distance. I'm going to paste them into the chat. And so we will all take a moment. Here we go. Um, um, whoever you are, um, whatever you are, to the holy. Your presence here is a gift. All are worthy. All are worthy. You are welcome. comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I say we're all afflicted and we're all comfortable. May our time together this morning be a comfort and a confrontation. May we find here peace in times of tumult. May we here invite tumult into lives of peace. May we here find calm in times of restlessness. May we here allow restlessness to evolve into action. Let this be the place you consider what you've never considered. Let this be the place you imagine for yourself something new and unthinkable. May this be the place, may this be the hour that brings dreams of new ways of being in the world. Come let us worship together. Now, Susan will lead us in the lighting of the chalice. 
Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Well, please join me in saying the words to light our chalice. If you have a chalice or candle nearby, please go ahead and light it now, and I will paste the words into the chat. We light this chalice. We light this chalice for the warmth of love. For the warmth of love. The energy of action. The energy of action. Our community and peace in our world. Thank you, Co. Did you know that uh, Co, one of our middle school awesome students, is um, helping us today and has been helping us for weeks now with um, with technical with AV stuff, highlighting people, unmuting many things. You're doing a great job. Thank you, Co. So I'm gonna scroll through, and I want to see you kids. Let's see. I think Zen and Estrella are here. I see, I see them. I see the Sapalios. I would love for you to pretend something. I want you to hold in your mind a picture of a Buddhist monk. And then also, I want you to pretend that you have a coconut in your hands. Because today's story is about the coconut monk. And it's by Thich Nhat Hanh. Once upon a time, there once was a monk who lived on a small island in Vietnam. He spent his time sitting in a coconut tree, eating coconuts. So people called him the coconut monk. Have you ever tried a coconut? With your goggles on, you would have to get a really big hammer and go wham to crack that coconut open. And there might be a little splatter of that coconut milk, but when you drink it, boy, is it yummy. The coconut monk had two very good friends, a cat and a mouse. If there's any cats in the audience, now would be the time to show them. They, this cat kitty plays a prominent role. Every day, they would climb up the coconut tree and play together. The coconut monk enjoyed sitting high in the tree with his friends. He would watch the boats going by on the Mekong Delta and listen to the birds sing. The coconut monk lived in a time when Vietnam was at war. All the fighting made him very sad. One day, he went out walking. While he walked, he collected bits of metal, pieces of bombs and bullets that littered the land. He melt, melted all the pieces and molded them together to make a beautiful bell. He told the pieces of metal, you have been playing the game of war. Now you can help create peace. Every night before going to sleep, he would strike the bell. Its music echoed into the night sky. 
The coconut monk decided to go and ask the president to stop the war. He didn't have any belongings, so packing was very easy. He just climbed down the tree and he was ready to go. But the coconut monk didn't go alone. His two friends, cat and mouse, came along to keep him company. They traveled for many days and nights, even though the road was rough and the journey very long. They stopped often to notice the beauty around them. At night, the monk slept leaning against the tree and the cat and mouse slept together in a basket. Sometimes it was rainy and cold and the friends all huddled together for warmth. Other times it was warm and they played outside in the sunshine. Finally, they reached the presidential palace, a huge white building surrounded by many guards, and the guards would not let them in. What can you, a simple monk, have to say to the president, they demanded. The coconut monk held up the basket with the cat and mouse, happily playing together. I would like all people to live together in peace, he said, the way my friends cat and mouse do. Surely our differences are no bigger than theirs. When the guards heard this, they became very angry. You fool, they shouted and grabbed the monk. They threw him in prison. Because the cat and mouse wouldn't leave their friend, the guards had to throw them in prison too. The prison was dark and cold, but the coconut monk sat very quietly and continued to breathe peacefully, just as he had under his coconut tree. The coconut monk shared his food with the cat and mouse and all the other prisoners. Even though there wasn't much food, the cat did not eat the mouse. People started asking about the coconut monk. They wrote letters and visited him in prison, and soon the guards had no choice but to release him. The monk, the cat, and the mouse returned to their coconut tree. If a cat and mouse can live together in peace, don't you think that we humans can too? So even when you see creatures with such big differences like cat and mouse, we can remember we can live together in peace too. May it be so. Thank you, Austin. Uh, I would like to introduce now our From the Heart for today. We have been doing a summer series of reflections on racial justice, where we can learn something, explore our experiences, look at the world with new eyes, ask questions, acknowledge mistakes, and find new paths forward. It is my pleasure to introduce Rio Rio Frio to share his thoughts with us today. Good morning, everyone. Um, I wanted to just begin quickly by saying that Zoom is such a flawed technology, and yet it really is a gift to be able to see all of you. And I wanted to also just lend a thanks to all the people behind the scenes um, that put this together. I'm, I'm very grateful. And I also wanted to, um, a speaker's prerogative, I wanted to welcome my parents who are tuning in and also some friends of ours from Ecuador and Brazil. So, <laughs> um, okay. So like many of you, I have tuned in every Sunday for the last few weeks. And like many of you, I have been struck by the brave honesty of our fellow congregants 
as they've shared their own personal reflections on issues of race and racial injustice. Having dedicated the last 20 years of my life to teaching, but also constantly learning about racial inequities, I find that I have entirely too much to say in only three or four minutes. I will, however, take just a moment to thank Eileen O'Brien, Lisa Craig, Jessica O'Brien, and Katrina Landon for their insights and their sentiments. I have been inspired by their words, their actions, and their example. I found myself thinking quite a bit about this opportunity to share with all of you, and there were so many possible things I considered sharing. I thought about talking in detail about the ways in which what Beverly Tatum calls the smog of prejudice works its way into our thinking. And to do so, I considered talking about a moment my freshman year in college when I learned that my fellow soccer player, an African-American student from DC who would later become one of my best friends in college, had gotten a higher score than I had on the SAT. Not only was his score higher than mine, it was significantly higher than mine. And I remember clearly being surprised. Why surprise exactly? The answer is quite simply the smog of racial prejudice that had taught me that young black men my age were likely to be more athletic than I was, but certainly not better test takers. I considered talking about white privilege or about the seductive nature of apathy, how soothing it can be to simply tune things out and assume that the work of racial justice is somebody else's calling. I considered taking another approach and talking about the deep inspiration that I took from reading John Lewis's memoir and March, the graphic novel of his life story. Ultimately though, I decided that what I wanted to talk about today was the importance of putting ourselves in uncomfortable positions and the bravery that it takes to learn from that discomfort. All four of this summer's From the Hearts have centered on a moment when one of our fellow congregants had the foresight and honesty to recognize their own privilege or their own racial shortcomings. But their stories, our stories, also indicate that recognition is only half the challenge. The other half, equally difficult and equally important, is the willingness to sit in that discomfort, to rest in that moment of error in order to own it, and then make a commitment to being a better version of ourselves. For ultimately, this is what pursuing the work of racial justice does. It makes us individually a better version of ourselves so that in our own modest way, we can contribute to making our society a better version of itself. This comfort and discomfort doesn't begin or end with issues of race. As a light-skinned Latino, yes, I have had a lot to learn about my own privilege, my own prejudice, my own inadvertent contributions to a system of racial inequality. But as a cisgender, cisgender is the term for those of us who identify as the gender with which we were assigned at birth. As a cisgendered, straight, able-bodied male, I have also had to learn about the many ways in which our society privileges my type of body. This recognition of my privilege, alongside the recognition of the ways in which our society continues to be patriarchal, homophobic, ableist, transphobic, is deeply uncomfortable. But what should I, what should we do with that discomfort? Modestly, what I want to suggest here today is that we should embrace it, own it, and be willing to work with that discomfort. In the 20 years that I have studied and taught about racial injustices, I have grown increasingly comfortable with having the tough discussions that arise around issues of racial inequality. And I continue to work on being comfortable talking about the other issues in which I am, by virtue of who I am, 
implicated. If we can collectively embrace this collective discomfort, we have real hope for substantive change. If we can embrace the many errors, big and small, that we will no doubt commit, we have a chance to learn and grow in ways that will make us better allies to marginalized communities. Also, and more importantly, it will give us the strength and resolve to do the work of making our society a place of sincere, lasting equality. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rhea. We invite you now to a moment of meditation, reflection, and prayer. I invite you to call to mind those who are particularly on your heart this morning. If you are on Zoom, I invite you to type their name in the chat so we can reach out in loving presence and draw this circle wide. So many people. Holding all of these loved ones and Isabel and cares and joys, I invite you now to close your eyes and focus on your breath as the bell leads us into a time of silent meditation. Amen and blessed be.
Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Each Sunday, we make an offering from the bounty we are blessed to enjoy. We do so in a spirit of generosity and in recognition of our ongoing commitment to serve our world and share our values. If you're join, joining us for the first time, please feel free to give if you wish, but know that your presence is gift enough. Today's offering goes to our general fund. If you'd like to give through the website, please visit wuu.org, click on Give Online. If you'd like to give by text, there is information in the chat, 757-500-2000. Uh, and you can follow the prompts from there. If you would prefer to give by check, please mail your check to WUU 3051 Ironbound, and the zip is 23185. Thank you for your generosity.
Thank you, Dave. I now have a poem to share with you. View with a grain of sand by Wislaya Simborska. We call it a grain of sand, but it calls itself neither grain nor sand. It does just fine without a name, whether general, particular, permanent, passing, incorrect or apt. Our glance, our touch means nothing to it. It doesn't feel itself seen and touched and that it fell on the windowsill is only our experience, not its. For it, it is not different from falling on anything else with no assurance that it has finished falling or that it is falling still. The window has a wonderful view of a lake, but the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world, colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, painless. The lake's floor exists floorlessly and its shore exists shorelessly. The water feels itself neither wet nor dry and its waves to themselves are neither singular nor plural. They splash depth to their own noise on pebbles neither large nor small. And all this beneath a sky by nature skyless in which the sun sets without setting at all and hides without hiding behind an unminding cloud. The wind ruffles it, its only reason being that it blows. A second passes, a second second, a third. But there are three seconds only for us. Time has passed like a courier with urgent news, but that's just our simile. The character is inverted. His haste is make-believe. His news, inhuman. Thank you for that, Susan. A few years ago, um, summer, about this time, August 1st, uh, my family and I went to Nags Head for a week. And like many of those cottages have, there are bookcases just jammed with books. And one of them that I noticed almost right away was one called by Gabriel uh, Garcia Marquez called Love in the Time of Cholera, which was quite an amazing book, taking place during the time of cholera. The whole story uh, had that backdrop as its setting. So it really reminded me of what we're going through now. Our whole lives lived in the, in the pace of an illness um, that's going on all around us and within the whole world. And I know, like the poem talks about, our senses of time have slown, uh, at least uh, for me and for others I talk to, the days seem to melt into each other. And the other thing I thought the poem that Susan just read had to say to us today, and something about what this talk has to do, is how we project onto the world what we see 
how we create the world by what we envision the world to be. And in that, in that light, I entitled this uh, talk, Love in the Time of the Pandemic or COVID-19. And just as that cholera was the backdrop, then um, we have during this novel time of novel coronavirus, uh, a very unusual time that we're adjusting to in a, in a completely new way. It's pretty overwhelming, isn't it? And uh, we've been doing it since March, but still um, it's hard enough to behave well when the world is kind of normal to a certain extent, but uh, now the stressors seem to be everywhere we look. And we're afraid. And if you're like me, you don't have a clue what to do next. So how do we show up with love during a pandemic? Years of working in the nonprofit sector taught me that the first place I would go is to try to be of some practical help to people or to myself. What do I need? What do other people actually need in real practice? What can I do as a way of actual help to others? Incredible people say, what I'm gonna do is follow the science, stay home, socially distance, wear masks, get tested if I have symptoms. It's basic stuff for most people, still good approach will be for a while. But this crisis has many layers of complexity. It's filled us with massive uncertainty, no tried and true paths to follow. Uh, and since I'm trained as a religious type person, the first place I go when something like this happens in, in life that I don't have a clue about is to spiritual leaders or gurus. And one of the people I admire and respect a lot is a meditation instructor named Sharon, Sharon Salzberg started an insight meditation group in Massachusetts with Joseph Goldstein. And she's written a lot of books, a lot of emphasis on love itself. She called one real love, the art of mindful connection, and another love your enemies, how to break the anger habit and be a whole lot happier. So we're coming up on election, and I think a little bit about four years ago in the past election and how I, like a number of other people, was pretty grief-stricken when the candidate won who won. And, uh, and here we are again approaching a second election. And maybe many of us feel like I do that the, that the, the, the world, especially the United States, for us living in it right now, is not a better place than it was four years ago. Um, and it's not just all the disease and death, although there's a lot of that, 150,000 people in America and worldwide over 675,000. We're also dealing with massive unemployment, climate change, storms, tornadoes, flooding. We're standing up though during these times and protesting in the streets with Black Lives Matter. Uh, while we're also dealing with wondering what the future of state institutions like banks and universities and regular educational facilities are going to do in the future. We're grateful every day 
as our metaphors and similes change to include in our heroes people like grocery store clerks and garbage people who are essential workers coming every day to help us um, do what's necessary to keep our lives moving smoothly, get food we need to eat. Um, people are facing eviction. Uh, mothers are leaving careers to care for and stay home with their children from school until, until it's safe to open again. It's like, in a way, dominoes falling and being picked back up in some cases and some cases not. But the one thing I know is that we're all uncertain and we're all afraid. And it doesn't look the same person, same way necessarily from person to person. Some people express their fear by acting like things aren't nearly as bad, things aren't bad at all, as scientists and much of the world thinks they are. Their defiance shows that they are not afraid or maybe protects them from the knowledge of just how afraid we all really are. The wonderful poet Audre Lorde once said that when we're taking care of people, we take care of ourselves first. And her quote is, self-care is an act of resistance. And it can be the resistance of what the opinions of others or outside forces might call us to do. Or what those outside forces are calling us to do, helpful or hurtful. Um, there's so many opinions in the public square now that everything seems very confusing and widely divergent. At base, listening to uh, ourselves and basing our resistance on what our bodies tell us means listening to our hearts and minds about how to care for ourselves and how not to ex heed those external voices that ask us to ignore our own needs, to sacrifice ourselves for the good of uh, maybe a small group of people better off than ourselves. How not to ignore our own needs because if we feed this, the greed rather than taking care of ourselves and others, it's at everyone's peril. When other citizens put our lives in danger, love is not our natural response. Self-protection is. So what are the opportunities now in this time of great desire to protect ourselves and our loved ones and to do some good on a daily basis in ordinary ways? I was reminded of um, one of the great Buddhist teachings, the four Brahma Viharas, uh, which are the great virtues that uh, we Buddhists spend time trying to cultivate in ourselves. Uh, the first one is loving friendliness, the second one, compassion, the third one, uh, sympathetic joy, and the fourth one, equanimity. Now, today I'm talking about love, loving friendliness, um, not in the usual way we may think about love in terms of well, we're we going to give it to somebody and they're going to give it back to us, but as a way of connecting with other people on a very human level. Um, so the first of these four Brahma Viharas or abodes is love. How do we live in love? Susan Salzberg spent the last 50 years trying to answer that question, and she's a daily meditator. She also does a podcast called... Um, well, I don't know what the name of it is, but she does it. And uh, 
she most recently, uh, one of the most recent interviews she did in March, actually with, with a woman named Shelley Tygielski. Um, Shelley Tygielski has also spent much of her life trying to help people. Uh, she's very practiced in it. Um, so when the lockdown started back in, in March, one of the first things that Shelley Tygielski did was because she had done work in the past supporting underserved communities and trauma-informed support groups, she decided to start a group called the Pandemic of Love. Don't you love that? Um, in the very first days of the movement, Shelley determined that her goal was to try to fill people's days with happy stories and to help reshape our faith in humanity. This premise was based on the Lord quote, quote self-care being an act of resistance and self-care being necessary in order if we can genuinely care for other people. So she set up a, what's called a mutual aid organization that she describes as a closed circuit group of individuals. Um, her group identifies needs as well as the individuals who can help with those needs. It isn't necessarily only help with money, although that's part of it. It's also help with needs such as babysitting, meals, transportation, places to stay. Um, she set about to create a formal community of care and the pandemic of love would act like neighborhoods in America's past used to act where neighbors looked in on each other. And as an aside, this creative idea came bubbling up in Shelley's head one day when she was sitting in her meditation chair. And the process went something like this. On the first day, back in March of 2020, she created two forms. One of the forms, it was an application, said, get help. The second application said, give help. So depending on what your circumstances were, you'd fill out one or the other of, the, of those applications. The first day that she put the applications online and um, with a small video explaining what she was trying to do, she got 400 people asking for help and 500 people offering help. She immediately set about trying to match people and she found that with there's a lot of work to do. She couldn't do it all. She kept getting more and more and more people filling out the I need help or I can give help forms. Um, and so she solicited people to come in and help her start matching folks up. Uh, so this has been going on since March. Um, within 72 hours, uh, she started uh, receiving forms from communities all over the United States and all over the world. Currently in California, over 100,000 forms have gone out. Um, and there are a lot of different neighborhoods in that city. Um, and once a movement starts to go, uh, once a movement goes local, uh, you can learn even more about what people need, whether they're big tasks or small tasks. So at this point, um, just to give you some statistics, she has over 800 volunteers with 235,000 matches between families and patrons and over $33 million in direct transactions since she started on March 14, 2020. Now, there might have been something a little bit special about Shelley Tagowski. She, she had been practicing doing advocacy work for a number of years. Um, and I, I do think she's a tremendous inspiration to all of us 
you know, that we can do something, even if we start at a very small level. She didn't really expect this to take off as it did. And she said she started meditating in her early 20s. She's in her 50s now. Um, but she said at first she called herself a crisis meditator, which meant she only meditated when there was a crisis or when um, she felt something was breaking down. Uh, and one time something was really breaking down her own body when she felt a flush of her, she actually went blind from a, a rush of white blood cells to her uh, brain and discovered she had an autoimmune disease. And when she was diagnosed with that, she was told to start meditating. That was one of the pieces of advice that her doctor gave her amongst other medical help. And she did, and she hasn't stopped ever since. She had been working at the time for a very stressful for-profit business, and she, um, she decided she could definitely use it there in her, in her life at that point. But after a while, she became interested in John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction and uh, took that class and got her certificate in, um, in mindfulness-based stress reduction. And has since, uh, she served as an activist in the corporate setting, and then she went to become an activist in the everyday setting as well as an instructor. Um, so she served in everyday lives as an advocate to save the whales, as a fight in fights to help the women's movement, uh, Black Lives Matter, as an advocate for demo democratic advocacy. And from childhood, she's expressed concern about social justice and what she's perceived as right versus wrong. At first, she thought she would take her new certificate in um, and continue to work in the for-profit sector. Because like me and some of other of us, she was disappointed by the direction our country was going in in, in 2016. Um, but she also decided that instead of wallowing in her own grief, frustration, and anger, and rather to be swallowed up in the situation, she would ask herself instead, what is this situation calling from me? And I got that from John Chowning the other day. He asked that in a meditation group. What is this situation asking from me? What can I do about it? Um, and she believed that through meditation, we can learn what appropriate action to take. So down we sit, so we can rise up to speak, so we can rise up to act. Doing the inner work makes it possible to stand up and speak with the appropriate action we need to take in the outer world. Especially when for Shelley Tegilski, her despair had turned to rage. And she found in her despair and rage, it was very hard to come to clarity. To stay in a state of rage was for her to, to hold on to a state of impairment. Learning to love her enemies she saw as a way to deal, but how? Essentially with so much divisiveness, even hearing love your enemies has seemed abhorrent at times. Factions have developed people who maybe believe that others are not worthy of their love. But she reminded herself that in the current climate, change may be slow, more of a marathon than a sprint, a long game rather than a short one. People can burn out from despair, distress, or through the scattered disfocus of anger. Disenchanted, we may do little good for anyone, including ourselves. 
ourselves. In our rage, we can damage our own health. We don't, but we don't have to use ourselves up in service to our values. We can see the truth that holding on to outrage will kill us and likely do little help for our cause. So she's been taking care of herself and recollecting Audrey Lord's words, self-care is a matter of resistance. She has responded in her history to injustice. She was motivated initially by the fact that she actually lives in the same area as Marjorie Stoneman stood, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the high school where they had that terrific shooting several years ago. And it was a while before she realized her son was one of the survivors of that. She helped the group organize March for Our Lives. Remember all those students going around the country telling their story about what happened to them at Marjorie Stoneman and them never wanting to happen to anyone again. Um, Sharon Salzberg also tells a story that I'm gonna hearken back to now about a monk, he's a frail old monk, she liked to go to visit. And she liked to visit him because he didn't have a lot of time left, he was pretty old. And she wanted to spend whatever time she could with him while he was still around. And she always took him some flowers and fruit, had a good visit. Um, and the last time she visited him, she thought, well, this is really gonna be the last time I get to see him, you know, so this is gonna be a very special visit. Um, but as it turned out, there was more than one visit. There was more that she could do and there was more that he did as he could do as well. Sharon suggests that the urgency she felt during that time with the frail old monk may be like what many of us have felt as a result of the gravity of COVID-19. We don't have much, if any, control over this virus, but we can control our spheres of influence. We can control how we react. This is a period in most of our lives globally where the pause button has been hit and whether we like it or not, we have time to remember to sit back, step back, think, not lash out, take care of ourselves. Self-care is resistance. Sit still, breathe, let go of the small stuff, become more responsive instead of reacting, and help all the people we can, including ourselves in this strange time. We all know our everyday lives have changed dramatically. We don't have our usual routines, our usual schedules. We don't go to our jobs. Our children don't go to their schools. We don't even go out to dinner very much or to gyms or sporting events. We've had to let go of all that, sometimes thinking it could be weeks or months. Who knows, it's undetermined. Whatever we've envisioned our futures to be before and who we would be in them have to be let go. They're just projected images anyway. Yet we do not have to get swept up, pushed away, or pushed down because of our fear or anger. We could be freaked out by what comes up next, but we can still relate, relate and connect on a deep level. We are all afraid and we all don't know what's gonna happen, so we're connected. And even though our similes and metaphors don't work the way they used to for us, 
there are new heroes in our situation, be they grocery clerks or garbage people or uh, doctors and nurses who've always been some of our biggest heroes being some of our biggest heroes now. And we can add, at least for me, Shelley Tygilski, founder of Pandemic of Love. You can Google it. Just put that phrase in to your computer, pandemic of love, and it'll come up. And here's the motto. Love is the virus. Love is infectious. And love is the cure. The pandemic of love is a mutual aid community of care that was started in response to COVID-19. It humbly began on March 14th, 2020 by one person and was intended to help her own local community. But like an epidemic, the act of love and kindness spread quickly and is now a beautiful movement throughout the world. A mutual aid community helps to connect people in need with patrons who can help with that need. This is a tangible way for people to give to each other quickly, discreetly, and directly. What's the catch, you might ask, and there is none. Kind people, are introduced to kind people, which results in an act of kindness and human connection. Thank you. As we leave this friendly place, love give light to every face. May the kindness which we learn light our hearts till we return. As we leave this friendly place, love give light to every face. May the kindness which we learn light our hearts till we Let's say the words to extinguish the chalice, and we invite you to blow out your own candle at the same time. We extinguish this flame, but not the light the warmth of the fire of commitment. together again. Now, to go out with a benediction. We leave this gathered community, but we don't leave our connection, our concerns, our care for each other, our service to each other, to the world, and to our faith continues. Until we're together again, friends, be strong, be well, be true, and be loving. Thank you.